Welcome to Ancient Words, Modern Message. I'm your host, Roger Womble. The past is a mirror, and the more we examine what came before us, the more we can understand where we are heading. In 2014, the Wombolds, Roger and Phyllis, began an informational and teaching ministry called Schmooze News and Views. Over the years, Schmooze, as it is affectionately known, has grown numerically and in popularity, with over 20 churches represented in attendance. Each session of Schmooze includes a Bible study, with most of the studies drawn from the Old Testament, including little-known and seldom-taught sections of the Old Testament prophets. Since 2014, Roger has taught each of the twelve minor prophets, from Hosea through Malachi. We invite you now to step into the sessions of Schmooze, News, and Views as we consider one of the least-known books of the Old Testament, the prophet Amos, in a series we call Simple Man, Profound Message. We've entitled this first study of the book, Amos, the Man and His Message. And as I said, we're going to be looking at the book of Amos, which actually is nine chapters. If you would continue to pass those pages of notes around, please. And we'll be looking at those notes as well as the text, which there are two pages of, of the sheet of the text there. And since this is our ninth series of Schmooze News and Views, you might be interested to know that we have covered most of the minor prophets in these nine series. Remember that there are 12 books of the Old Testament, 12 books that are identified as the minor prophets. Remember, and I know you all know this, don't be insulted by my quick review, but remember they are called the minor prophets not because they are less important, but because they are shorter. It's that simple. There are 12 books of prophetic writings in the Old Testament that are shorter than the major prophets. The major prophets would be books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And those would be the major prophets that are much larger. These 12 books are much uh, shorter, thus being the minor prophets. So far, by way of review, what we've covered, and since you were, those of you who are with us from the beginning, uh, you know all about this stuff, because thus far we have considered, incidentally, remember the 12 are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those are the 12. Uh, and so those are the last 12 books, essentially, of the Old Testament, those 12 minor prophets. Thus far, we have studied Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Malachi, Micah, Joel. We took a little uh, breather and then went to the book of Hebrews and then came back to the book of Haggai, the book of Obadiah, the book of Jonah, and the book of, ne book of Nahum. And now we're considering the book of Amos. If you happen to mention to a friend that you're attending a meeting where there is a Bible study and you're studying the book of Amos, 
Don't be surprised if your friend says, I didn't know there was a book like that in the Bible. <laughs> because Amos is not one of those books that is commonly studied. And then, but at the same time, the minor prophets are not commonly studied, which is why I've decided that in these sessions, we're going to study them. And the book of Amos certainly is no exception to that. As we jump right in, let's begin with the consideration. Incidentally, do you all have a copy of the page of notes and the text? Thank you. Very good. Thanks on for, for helping with that. Okay, let's just uh, jump in by, by considering a little bit about the man, uh, the man Amos, who is clearly identified as the writer of this book. And what we learn uh, from Amos chapter 1, verse 1, which says this, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. We learn, first of all, that his home was Tekoa. Tekoa is a biblical city located about five miles southeast of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem. In fact, when we tour Israel, we take a quick trip to Bethlehem. It's about a 15-minute bus drive from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And about five miles southeast of Bethlehem is the ancient city of Tekoa, which is identified as the home of Amos. His occupation, we learn very quickly from Amos 1.1, was that of shepherd. I think in the authorized version, in the King James Version, it says herdsman, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but a, a better translation probably is this, a shepherd someone who herded sheep. He was a shepherd. He also was a farmer. Now, you don't learn that from Amos 1.1, 1, 1, uh, where it only says that he was a herdsman. Uh, but a little while later uh, in the book of Amos, and I have the passage there before you, it's chapter 7, verse 14, where Amos is... <coughs> speaking to one of the religious leaders of his day, and this is what he says. I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, <coughs> shepherd, and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. There he identifies himself not only as a herdsman or a shepherd, but as a dresser of sycamore figs. Most of you would say, a dresser of a sycamore tree? Why would you do that? Well, you, you know, it's a little difficult sometimes to find the equivalent in our uh, flora and fauna of, um, of Middle Eastern trees and vegetation. And, and the word that is translated sycamore here refers to a tree that actually did produce figs. And so he was a uh, a shepherd, a herdsman, and a farmer. And we learn that from those two passages. Something else we learn from the passage I just read to you from Amos chapter 7, verse 14, is that his qualifications as a prophet were not formal, but rather were spiritual. Not formal, but rather spiritual. It's a very fascinating statement. Uh, we'll look at it later on when uh, Amos is really confronted 
by the number one religious leader in the northern kingdom of Israel. And in responding to the accusations and the charges of that religious leader concerning what he as a prophet was saying to the northern kingdom of Israel, this is what Amos says. He says, I was referring to his call to be a prophet. He says, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. In other words, I don't come from a minister's family. I don't come from a professional clergy family. I wasn't a prophet. I was just a shepherd and a farmer. And I'm not a prophet's son. My daddy wasn't a preacher. I'm not the son of a preacher man. <laughs> and he says, I have no official qualifications other than this. And it is, the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord, that's Jehovah, by the way. That's why it's in capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, Jehovah. The Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. That is his qualification. Not his pedigree, but the fact that God called him and told him, this is what I want you to say. In a small way, I can relate to that. Because I have to tell you, after all these years of being in ministry and preaching and teaching the word of God, I don't understand what I'm doing up here. I'm not someone who is the son of a preacher man. My dad went to eighth grade and he was a garage worker. I grew up in Salford Station. Yes, that's right, Salford Station. Back when it was called Salford Station. And it was truly the other side of the tracks. I grew up in a converted summer bungalow that had been um, actually used for summer retreats by wealthy Jewish people who came from Philadelphia <laughs> on the Reading Railroad to vacation along the lovely Perkyoman Creek before cars were common and they couldn't get to the shore, to Ventnor and Margate. But that was my background. And to this day, I find myself saying, why, why in the world do I think that I have a right to stand up in front of a group of people and have them, and Arlo, you're still awake. That's great. <laughs> why do I think I have a right to, to do this and to have people listen to me? And there's only one answer. Because when the Lord calls you and says, this is what I want you to do, that's your qualification. And I want you to know, I've never lost sight of that. Uh, people ask me, do you still get nervous? Petrified. Uh, truly, my wife will tell you that. Um, and, and yet, you know, I can, I can relate to Amos in this regard uh, that his qualifications were definitely not formal, uh, but they were spiritual in that God had called him. Now, how about the message? We learned a little bit about the man. How about a little bit about the message? Well, the date is significant. It's important. Uh, the message itself, which is the whole book of nine chapters, is dated around 760 BC. It's good to have a date to hang on to, 760 BC. We know that from the first verse. Look at the verse. It says, as we continue on, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. 
and and there is a chronological um, foundation point there that that we can we can actually do some calculations uh, concerning the reigns of these two kings, and and that's what leads us to this date of six, 760 BC. Let me remind you just very very quickly uh, what this was all about. You'll remember that Saul was the first king of Israel. And you'll remember that David, of course, followed Saul. And after David, uh, the, the kingdom, the United Kingdom of Israel, uh, of the Jewish nation, uh, fell into the hands of Solomon. And at the time of Solomon's death, the successor to the throne of Israel was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But remember what transpired there. You'll remember that Solomon, uh, because he was involved in building the temple in Jerusalem, because he was involved in other expansion programs of the nation of Israel, uh, because he was involved in a lot of, of all kinds of programs, that the tax burden was extremely heavy upon the Jewish people. And so when Solomon died, and the leadership of Israel was turned over to his son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam's counselors and advisors early on said to him, King, we need to give you some advice. Your father placed a heavy, heavy burden upon your people, the Jewish people. We advise you back off from the tax burden. Remember what the response of Rehoboam was? They ain't seen nothing yet. And he said, my father's tax levy would be considered minor compared to what I'm going to do. The result was a rebellion of the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom led by a man named Jeroboam. And from that time onward, there was a Northern Kingdom of Israel consisting of 10 tribes and a Southern Kingdom of Israel consisting of two tribes, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. Now, that's what's in view here when it says that Amos prophesied in the days of Uzziah. He was king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, he was the king. Now, this is Jeroboam II, not the one who led the rebellion. Jeroboam II in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And the date that we calculate there is the date of 760 B.C. There's another interesting little time peg there, and that is, it goes on to say in verse one, two years before the earthquake. Two years before the earthquake. Obviously, there was an earthquake that was widely known, and Amos is actually identifying his prophetic time as being two years before the earthquake. Um, let me just take a little bit of a, of a side path and read a passage to you from the book of Zechariah. You probably don't have your Bible in front of you. That's fine. Let me read these verses to you. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about the glorious return of Jesus to the earth. And remember, Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah chapter 14 says that when he comes back in power and glory, Jesus is going to touch down, if you will, on the same spot from which he left over 2,000 years ago on the Mount of Olives. Today, it's identified as the Mount of Ascension. There's a church there, the Mount of Ascension. But then there's a church everywhere in Israel. 
Uh, and so that spot is going to be the place to which Jesus comes back. And here's the description in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day, Jesus the Lord, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in its midst toward the east and toward the west. That's an earthquake. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azale, yea, ye shall flee as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. It's interesting that Zechariah refers to that same earthquake in the days of Uzziah. By the way, Israel is situated on the great rift. There is a great, huge fault that runs from Southwest Asia all the way to East Africa. In Africa, there is an area known as the Rift Valley. And Israel is smack dab along that path of the Rift. About every 100 years, there's a major earthquake in Israel. Let that sink in, those of you who are going with us for the tour. <laughs> Now listen, I have more. You want to know when the last one was? 1927, which means we're in good shape. It's not going to happen for another nine years. Uh, but there is a fault there. And, and so this was a major earthquake that was identified in the days of Uzziah. And as a result of that, there is the dating of the book around 760 BC. Now, what we've already learned is that Amos came actually from the southern kingdom. He lived in Tekoa, which is just south of Bethlehem, which is in the southern kingdom. But his commission was primarily to be a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And we'll see later on in Amos chapter 7 how that kind of backfired on him, where this great religious leader of the northern kingdom says, why are you from the southern kingdom coming up here and telling us bad news? Why don't you go back home and tell bad news to your own people? Uh, but his commission was to the northern kingdom, was directed primarily toward Israel, the northern kingdom. But secondarily, we'll see that he also has some words of prophecy directed toward Judah and the surrounding nations. You'll notice the message that is contained, um, especially in these first two chapters. The message of Amos the prophet is heavy on the inevitability of divine judgment against sin in any people, but especially God's judgment against sin in those spiritually privileged people. And once again, I, I have a verse there. That is Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Look at it. God is speaking through Amos to Israel, the nation, the Jewish people. And this is what he says to the Jews. In Amos chapter 3, he says, You only, you Jews, you descendants of Jacob, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You are a special people. You are chosen by me. You are spiritually privileged. And you have fallen into grievous sin. And because of that, you especially are going to be judged because of your sin. 
He goes on to say, I know of, I, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now that then leads us to uh, just considering some of these words of judgment to people regarding their nation. Incidentally, notice verse two. It says this, and he said, this is God speaking through Amos. He, Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion. Zion, by the way, is the Temple Mount located in Jerusalem. The Lord roars from Zion. Remember, at this period of time, there was a temple in Jerusalem where God manifested his presence in the Shekinah glory cloud. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the result of God roaring is this, the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. God is presented here as one who roars in judgment. And what we see then in these remaining verses in this section is number one, God's judgment of Israel's neighbors, and then God's judgment of Israel's relatives. And that is chapter one, Amos one, the entire chapter, and then going into chapter two, verses one through three. I want you to notice the unique style that Amos uses, not bad for a sheep herder and a farmer. Um, let me point out to you this style that you look at in Amos one, and it's very interesting. We'll start with verse three. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, and then the next verse, so I will. And that same pattern is followed actually six different times in these verses. It begins with, for three transgressions, no, make it four. For three, no, make it four. I will not withhold my judgment, my punishment, because, and because of something, I will do this. And so you have that in verse four. Then you have it again in verse six. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, no, make it four. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse seven, so I will. Here it is again in verse nine. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, no, make it four. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, and then again in verse 10, so I will. And there it is again in verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, and then verse 12, so I will. Verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites. No, make it four. I will not revoke the punishment because, verse 14, so I will. And the last one is there in chapter two, verse one, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, and so I will. And we're not going to take the time to go into these in detail, other than to have me point out to you that verses 3 through 10, that would be the first three proclamations of judgment. Uh, these have to do with Israel's neighbors, nations around Israel. And then the remaining three have to do with the judgment of relatives of the Jewish people. And so first of all, the first group is Damascus. And this represents, that's a city, Damascus, and that represents uh, God's judgment of the Syrians. 
just as an illustration, look at verse 3 uh, for just a moment. Following this pattern, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. It's an interesting style, isn't it? Uh, where Amos is just kind of saying, you know, you've done three things. Now, nah, actually, you've done more than that. You've done four. I think maybe he wants to say, you've actually done a whole bunch more than that. But we'll stop with four. Uh, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, meaning I'm not going to withhold my judgment. I'm going to judge you because they, that would be Syria. Damascus was the capital of Syria. Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So, because you've done this, Syria, this nation around Israel, so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, that is one of the kings of Syria, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, another one of the kings of Syria. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven, and him who holds the scepter from beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. That's the message to Syria. By the way, that in fact happened. When the Assyrians turned their wrath, the Assyrian army turned their wrath against Syria, and Syria under Hatzael the king and Ben-Hadad the king was attacked and largely judged uh, by this military invasion. Now you see that the next judgment is directed, that's verse 6 and following, to Gaza. Does that ring a bell, Gaza? Yeah, it's the same place that you hear in the news today. There are other cities that are mentioned in verse 8 associated with these people, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. That's verse 8. The Philistines had five major cities. The Philistines were the perennial enemies of the Jewish people. And they had five major cities. Those five major cities were Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. There's a fifth one that's not mentioned. It's Gath. That's where Goliath came from, Goliath of Gath. So this judgment is against the Philistines, the perennial enemies of the Jewish people, another surrounding group. And then verses 9 and 10, there is a word of judgment that is directed against Tyre. You see it there in verse 9. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. Uh, and it's interesting that the basis of that judgment is this. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Uh, by the way, the uh, Tyre was the capital city of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians. There was a king who, um, who reigned from Tyre, a king of the Phoenicians. His name was Hiram, king of Tyre. The Phoenicians were, were allies of the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden, at one point, they turned on the Jewish people. And God says, because of that, I'm going to judge you. Now, that has to do with Israel's neighbors. Uh, but then there's another group of people, and we turn then to uh, verse 11. And these are not just Israel's neighbors, the Syrians and the Philistines and the Phoenicians, but these are Israel's relatives. First group are the Edomites, verse 11. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The Edomites were relatives of the Jews. Remember that um, Isaac had uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, of course, is the ancestor of the Jewish people. Esau is the ancestor of the Edomites. In fact, King Herod was an Edomite. He had some Jewish blood in his veins, if you will, as a descendant of um, Isaac, uh, but he was actually a descendant of Esau and not of Jacob. And God promises judgment here against the Edomites because of their mistreatment of their relatives, the Jewish people. Then verse 13, there's another group of people. In fact, let's look at the two. It's the Ammonites in verse 13. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it's the Moabites. Now, these are all people that lived around Israel, but these are relatives. You remember that when the city of Lot, around the city was, excuse me, Sodom was destroyed, Lot and his daughters escaped. Remember, uh, Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt because she looked back at the city of Sodom and said, I really hate to leave this place. It was such a wonderful place to raise children. <laughs> and she was turned into a pillar of salt. But remember that now, basically, the daughters of Lot say, what are we going to do for descendants? And they had sexual relations with their father, Lot. The result of one of those relationships with one daughter was the Ammonites. The result of the other daughter and relations with their father was the Moabites. These are relatives of the Jewish people. And Moab, likewise, committed acts of perfidy against people in general and Israel in general. And the promise, therefore, is judgment against all of these groups. What's the bottom line on all of this? Uh, we haven't taken the time to read through all the verses. You can do that later on, but it's pretty heavy duty. I mean, it's God saying, because you did this, I'm going to judge you. Even though you're not my chosen people, because you did this, I will do this. I will judge you. Incidentally, I already mentioned that the promised judgment against the Syrians took place at the hands of the Assyrians, who eventually destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., but Syria before that was destroyed by the Assyrian army. The remaining groups of people, that is the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites were all defeated at the hands of the Babylonian army about 100 years later or so. And so God's judgment, God's promised judgment took place. The bottom line is this, God takes sin seriously. That's the takeaway. God takes sin seriously. Remember, he's identified in verse 2 as the Lord who roars out of Zion. He takes sin seriously, and so should we. That's, by the way, what the Day of Atonement is all about that is coming up. When Jewish people are concerned about their sins, what shall we do about our sins? God takes sin seriously. What shall we do about our sins? Sadly, the rabbis have said, well, this is what you do. You spend 24 hours in the synagogue on the Day of Atonement reciting prayers of penitence over and over again. 
and you fast for 24 hours. Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. Dress in clothing that looks like you're in mourning. Don't wear makeup. Don't take a bath. Don't take a shower. And by doing that, you'll demonstrate that you're sorry for your sins. And for good measure, do a lot of good works during this period of time, this 10-day period of time. Maybe God will see all of the good that you're doing and will forgive your sin. But the fact of the matter is that is not enough. Because God takes sin seriously, there was only one way, only one way for a righteous, holy, and just God to forgive sinful men. And that was by someone being the sin bearer for the wrath and the judgment of God. And that was Jesus. And by believing on him, and only by believing on him, can we be forgiven of our sins and welcomed into God's family as his children. God takes sin seriously. The tragedy of the Jewish world is not one Jewish person who goes to the synagogue on Yom Kippur will walk out at the end of the day with any assurance of forgiveness of sins. But you and I can walk out of here this evening and say, I know that my sins have been forgiven. And I know if I die tonight, I will go to be with the Lord because I've received Christ as my Savior. You know that hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand? All other ground is sinking sand. I like the last verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound that's the shofar when he shall come with trumpet sound oh may i then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before his throne on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand and that's Amos chapter 1. Let's close with a word of prayer. God and Heavenly Father, thank you. How can we ever thank you? The answer is by spending all of eternity thanking you and praising you. But thank you that we can be assured of the forgiveness of our sins. The words of the prophets make it very clear that you take sins seriously. You are a holy, a righteous, a just God. And you will not turn your head you will not overlook sin. Sin has to be judged. And that's why Jesus came as our Kapoor, our atonement. Thank you, Father, that by believing in him, we can indeed be forgiven of our sins and assured of eternity with you. And thank you for the reminder that we've had of that this evening. I pray, Father, for the many Jewish people around the world who will be observing Yom Kippur in just a short while but who will not have any assurance of forgiveness of sins because they have not received the free gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus, their Messiah and the Messiah of the world. I pray for them that many of them might have their eyes open and come to know him, but not only for the Jews of the world. I pray, Father, for all of those around us who need to understand that the only basis of salvation is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary for us. Thank you for this time that we've had together this evening. Take us safely to our homes to continue to serve you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for listening to Ancient Words, Modern Message. You can expect a new episode every other Monday, so please join us again. Ancient Words, Modern Message is supported by Hebrew Christian Fellowship. To learn more about our ministry or to ask a question, contact us at hcfellowship4819 at gmail.com. If you know someone who might be interested in this teaching, please share it with them. And please consider leaving a review of what you've heard on Apple Podcast. Your input helps us make our program even better and reach new listeners. All you have to do is open up the podcast app on your phone, look for Ancient Words, Modern Message, scroll down until you see Write a Review, and tell us what you think. Ancient Words, Modern Message is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. And I'm your host, Roger Womble reminding you that the Word of God is living and active. Until next time, showers of blessings on you and those you love.